everyone. Soon we'll start our episode about substance use disorders with expert guest Dr. Ted Bender. Before that, I wanted to share something that I read in the news and saw being shared through social media this week that's relevant to our topic today. It's a segment from the obituary of Madeline Linson-Meyer, a 30-year-old woman who tragically died on Sunday, October 7th due to drug addiction-related causes. I'll link to the full obituary in our show notes, and I do recommend reading the whole thing. But for now, I'll read this part of it. Madeline's family wrote, If you yourself are struggling from addiction, know that every breath is a fresh start. Know that hundreds of thousands of families who have lost someone to this disease are praying and rooting for you. Know that we believe with all our hearts that you can and will make it. It is never too late. If you are reading this with judgment, educate yourself about this disease because that's what it is. It is not a choice or a weakness, and chances are very good that someone you know is struggling with it, and that person needs and deserves your empathy and support. If you work in one of the many institutions through which addicts often pass, rehabs, hospitals, jails, courts, and treat them with the compassion and respect they deserve, thank you. If instead you see a junkie or thief or liar in front of you rather than a human being in need of help, consider a new profession. Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey folks, welcome back to the Jedi Council Podcast. This is Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing well. I'm excited about our expert guest today. He's a good friend of mine from high school, and I'm excited to talk to him about a really important topic, which is we'll be talking about substance use disorders and their treatment today. How about you? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, and also really excited um, to continue our ongoing series where we're leaning on other professionals who have some expertise outside of our area. Yeah, I think it's going to be just absolutely great. Definitely. So start out by introducing Ted Bender, PhD in clinical psychology, is going to be joining us today. He's the chief executive officer for Turning Point at Addiction Campuses. And he is going to talk to us about something that's been in the news quite a bit lately, which is a growing focus on substance use problems, overdose, tragic deaths of people who are struggling with these types of issues. And so we thought it'd be good to really have someone come on and talk about these things that are on a lot of people's minds. How are you doing today, Dr. Bender? Very, very good. Thank you both for having me. You're welcome. Well, usually we like to just start off with asking how you got into clinical psychology and kind of take us to the, the kind of work you do now so our listeners can hear about that. 
Oh, great. Well, um, a very good friend of mine named Katie Gordon um, <laughs> <Never> <laughs> was, <heard> uh, <laughs> was a graduate student at Florida State University when I was, um, I believe, uh, when I was a junior in undergrad. And I had finally kind of made up my mind on what I wanted to focus on and what I wanted to study. And I remember telling you about it. And you had mentioned that there was a, a spot open in a lab. Um, where I could kind of get in and get some experience. And really that was the door that kind of opened um, to get me to where I am today. Um, that lab ended up being a very important component of the research I ended up doing later. Um, and I, after only one summer, ended up basically being able to take over the whole lab. It was a molecular biology lab, and we were collecting data on uh, the serotonin transporter gene at the time. So, Katie, I'm glad I, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know it's always something I've always thought about, and you know I really wanted to thank you for for providing that opportunity for me because it really kind of catapulted me um, forward in my career, and it was a, a huge piece of being able to get into grad school in the first place, which is very very difficult to do in clinical psychology. Thank you so much for saying that, Ted. I'm I'm I remember you you joining the lab and just being so thrilled that that meant we got to work together more. And it's been fun to continue to talk about these issues that we both care about. So you're very welcome. And thank you for saying that. That's very kind of you. Absolutely. So Dr. Bender, one thing I'm wondering about, maybe just to get our listeners oriented who maybe aren't as familiar when we're thinking about uh, substance use disorders, what are kind of the DSM-5, and, and just as a reminder for our listeners, DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders that we've talked about several times. What are the criteria that make up those substance use disorders? Well, that's an excellent question, and it's something that's very important to understand because the majority of people who try drugs or alcohol won't end up going on to becoming addicted to those substances. I mean, for example, look at college campuses. There is a tremendous amount of binge drinking that happens on college campuses, um, you know, especially in big football schools. But the vast majority of students do not go on to then becoming alcoholics later in life. In fact, most students who, when they finish school or leave college, um, do not carry that behavior with them. But for some, especially those with the genetic heritability aspect of addiction, it is the it can be the trigger that turns on those genes, leading to something much more serious. So, the symptoms of this of this disease um, often look like taking the substance in larger amounts for longer than you're meant to. So you. Imagine going out for a couple of drinks and you say to yourself, I'm just going to have one or two tonight and I got to get home. I got a big day tomorrow. And then all of a sudden you end up having 10 or 11 and you're blacking out. Um, often people who suffer from addiction want to cut down or stop using, but they can't do it. They've tried, they failed, and they, and they go through this repetitive pattern of kind of trying or wanting to stop, but are not able to do it on their own. People who suffer from addiction are going to spend a lot of time getting the drug, using the drug, recovering from the drug, um, and cravings and urges um, to use the substance are very high. In fact, cravings is a symptom of this disease that wasn't added to the DSM until the DSM-5 and previously had not been in um, versions before that. Cravings, you know, are simply, you know, if you think about it and something that most people can understand, 
think about food. You know, every once in a while you have a craving for chocolate or, you know, a McDonald's hamburger or cheeseburger. But kind of to take that towards the drug or the alcohol and those cravings are much more intense and they can be overwhelming and impossible to ignore. Um, other symptoms of this disease involve missing out on things that you're responsible for. So you're not managing to do what you should at work or you're calling in sick all the time or you're having your friends or your spouse call in sick for you. Um, you're continuing to use even when it's causing problems for you. So with work or relationships, you're giving up important social, occupational, recreational activities because of substance use. You're using these substances even when it puts you in danger. So you know, one of the more common examples of that is, you know, while, dri while driving. Um, other symptoms of the disease are kind of continuing to use even when you're having physical, psychological problems or health problems or mental health problems. Um, and one of the most, you know, telling factors, if, you, if you're really wondering whether or not you have a problem, is tolerance. You know, if you're finding yourself needing to use more and more to get the same desired effect, it shows that you are building a tolerance to that substance, which can be a real key indicator of this disease. Thank you. That's really helpful. And I and I actually I I wanted to backtrack a little bit because I I didn't give you a chance to talk about how your current work is with people who are suffering from substance use disorders. Can you describe a little bit about what your job is now? Yeah. Um, so it's it's been an interesting kind of um, career path. So. Katie, as you know, I spent many years as a, as a suicide researcher. Um, we worked together in the same lab with um, Dr. Thomas Joyner, who's one of the leading experts on suicidality in the world. Um, and I spent many years doing that. And when I, when I headed to Brown for my residency, I started to work with um, some veterans in the, current, the most current wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, and I was doing um, some trauma-focused work, um, cognitive processing therapy, exposure-based therapies, and I was noticing that they had a lot of co-occurring addictions. Um, so I started becoming interested in the treatment of addiction kind of through my work with the military. Um, and then also, you know, my suicide research work took a turn towards the military as well, and I ended up doing a four-year postdoc with the um, suicide, Military Suicide Research Consortium through the Department of Defense. So I, I think I started to kind of um, veer towards treating addiction after, you know, my work in, with the military and, and, and soldiers and, and that arena, and I started becoming very interested in the treatment of these types of disorders. That's great. And so did you, how did you start, how did you get connected with Turning Point, or what was your first kind of position in uh working there? Um, so I actually, after uh, I finished my residency, um, I really, I had been away from home, which was South Florida for quite a long time. And um, I really wanted to just get back down there. And finally, after residency, I, I finished school and I got back down there. And um, actually, I, I think that was one of the last times I saw you it was um, probably about a week after I was, I came back home. And I remember speaking with your father, actually, um, Katie, and I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do down there. And um, while I was kind of speaking to him, I had some feelers out, some resumes, and one of them was for a treatment a treatment facility down in South Florida. So I ended up working for them for about five and a half years, and then that job took me out to Houston. 
where I spent three and a half years. When I was in Houston, again, we were doing the same kind of work. I was running treatment facilities, multiple facilities in, in that position. And I, um, I got wind of addiction campuses and turning point through social media. I saw uh, through LinkedIn and, and, um, and Facebook and, and Twitter that they were really doing some amazing things. Um, and I got very interested in them through that. And I reached out and very quickly they, they got back to me. And, and through a series of interviews and, and visits, um, I decided to make the leap and um, join Addiction Campuses in uh, December of 2017. That's great. And since you've been there, you've been helping people that have been struggling with with the problems that you just mentioned, right? And And one thing I think that's important to point out there is as you've had so much direct therapeutic provision for people struggling with substance use disorders, what kind of misconceptions do you think that people who don't have as much direct contact have about substance use problems? Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you asked that. Because that's, that's just such a critical component to this entire thing. Um, first of all, people that suffer from substance use disorders, half the time they think it's their fault. They believe that it is a choice and that there are just bad people because they continue to do what they're doing. Now, now the other half understand, maybe they've been in treatment before, maybe they've had some assistance. A lot of them will understand that it is a disease. Um, that being said, there's that much confusion just with people who are suffering from the disease. Imagine how much confusion there is with people that are not, or direct family members, or especially the lay public who's never had any experience with it. The biggest misconception out there right now is that this is a choice. They're choosing to use, no one's making them swallow that pill, so to speak, that their addiction is their choice and they can choose to stop. That could not be further from the truth. The way that I, I, I teach patients and I explain to family members and I try to help them understand is by using a medical model. For example, assume you had some sort of heritable disease, um, maybe sickle cell anemia or something like that. You know, telling someone who's suffering from addiction that, you know, if you loved me, you would just stop is like telling someone with a, you know, heritable medical condition that if you loved me, you would stop having symptoms of that disease. Or if you had the flu, for example, Imagine that you have the flu and you're very sick and you're in a room full of people and you're coughing a lot. Now, if someone came to you and said, hey, you know what? If you, re if you really respected everyone in this room, you'd just stop coughing. Obviously, that would sound ridiculous because it's not like you want to be coughing, but you can't stop it because you are ill. The disease of addiction is the same way. People can't just stop using whenever they want. It's a symptom of a disease. It has to be treated as a disease in order for successful outcomes to happen. And the sooner we all understand that this is a disease and not a defect of moral character, the better off they're going to be, the better off we're going to be as a people, and the better off we're going to be as uh, helping prevent and reduce the opioid overdose uh, crisis that we're currently facing. Thanks for explaining that. I think that's helpful. It seems like a big part of it is removing blame and, and changing the understanding about how this works. Is this controversial? Do you have patients or people's families who push back on this? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
I would say for the most part, and at least in my experience, once you educate families, the vast majority of them will start to come around on that. Um, for, I used to do what was known as family weekend when I worked uh, in Houston, South Florida. Every month for Saturday and Sunday, I would work with maybe 30 family members would come in kind of classroom style for the entire day, Saturday and Sunday. And I would teach them about all of these concepts and the disease model. And it seemed like almost every single month out of those 30 people, I always had about two or three people that were sitting there with their arms crossed, very defensive body language and posture. And you could just tell they weren't buying anything I was selling. Um, they, because their experience with their loved one's addiction was different in their minds than everybody else's. And they just didn't believe it. But 27 or 28 out of 30 did. They were eager for knowledge. They wanted to be informed. Um, and they appreciated the kind of scientific explanation for everything. And from that point, we can start focusing on what is helpful for their loved ones versus what is not. Um, so, yeah, there is some pushback. But I would say, in my experience, the vast majority of people um, do understand it once they're educated on the topic. So it sounds like a big part of that is practically moving away from the blame and things like that, which I imagine has already been occurring and, and didn't help, right? That they've probably been blamed in the past for the, the addiction problems they're struggling with and instead shifting to, uh, like you said, a practical what's yeah. helpful and what's not helpful. Exactly. Dr. Benner, I'm wondering, what are the types of things that you've observed that get people to the place where they are seeking treatment for substance you know, use disorder? That's also a very good question. Unfortunately, it's by the time they get to me, it's usually because they've suffered significant consequences in their life. Um, we very seldom do we see, you know, that 18 year old who just started using substances a few months ago and just wants to nip it in the bud before it becomes a problem. Very rare. Do we see that the vast majority of the patients that I see for inpatient substance use disorder treatment have suffered significant problems, whether it be arrest, jail time, health problems, recent overdose, near-death near death overdose experiences, significant financial problems, um, relationship issues. It's usually years and years of substance use before they actually will seek treatment, either voluntarily by, they, by their own self-will or with significant pressure from their family members or sometimes even, you know, ordered by the courts. So it seems like at that point, this is often something they've been struggling with for a very long period of time, and then something drastic happens that, or, or maybe it's a cumulative effect that kind of brings people in. And, and once they're in the treatment facility, what kind of treatments do you work, do you use? What works best for substance use? I'm glad disorders? you asked that too. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting. Many, many people have seen that show intervention uh, on cable. Um, and I, I've always liked the last 10 minutes of that show mostly um, because I think the interventionists on that show do a very good job. And if you've seen that show before, you see how difficult it is just to get them into treatment. And you're often wondering in that show, are they going to go? Where, are they going to go? Or are they not going to go? And then kind of at the end, they show you if they went or not and maybe kind of an update. The interesting part about that is that's just the beginning. 
just getting them in the door is the first step, but the real battle begins often after they get there. So typical situation, maybe, um, let's say, you know, severe opioid addict, maybe an IV heroin user, they'll come into treatment, um, for different reasons and they'll get there. And then the first couple days, they're usually pretty out of it. They'll either be sleeping most of the time or, um, you know, just not feeling well. And then they begin the detox protocol. So the first week or so in these types of facilities, again, depending on, you know, the severity of the client or the patient is spent focused on their medical care. So during detox, which is usually the first seven to nine days, we are literally just making sure that they are medically stabilized. Not a lot of people understand that just withdrawal from many drugs, many substances are, are, can be deadly. Um, for example, you know, if you just watch the movies, you'd think that heroin withdrawal would be the most dangerous. But in fact, it's very uncomfortable, but not nearly as dangerous as alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawal. Those are both syndromes that can kill you. Um, so, you know, when you hear p- people, you know, who are alcoholics saying that, you know, they're going to go cold Turkey, they don't often understand that that's, that can actually kill them pretty easily. So we are monitoring them very carefully through that process. We do use, um, different drugs and narcotics to help ease through that process and make sure that they, you know, don't have seizures and strokes and heart attacks. Um, so that's kind of like the first week might look like. And, you know, again, depending on their physical condition, we will we'll get them into group therapy. Um, we'll get them in to see their an individual therapist uh, and just get them going as much as we can while they're recovering physically. That's week one. Week two, they're going to be kind of most of the time coming off of the detox protocol, and that's where we might start to see some withdrawal symptoms. So the, the detox protocol does use, you know, opioid-based uh, medications, to help ease withdrawal, but they're going to experience sometimes some withdrawal symptoms in that seven to 10 day window. That is the most dangerous time for early discharge where you, if you're going to, if patients are going to leave or leave prematurely, it's usually in that window of time because the cravings, again, the urges to use can become very strong. So we're focused a lot, you know, at a turning point addiction campuses in that first week on their medical stability. Um, but people that make it through that seven to 10 day hump usually stay and finish and complete. So once again, once we got them kind of physically, um, stabilized, then we really will focus on treating the, uh, the whole person. So we're a dual diagnosis treatment facility. So substance use disorders are primary, but the vast majority of our clients also have comorbid or co-occurring conditions. The most common ones being depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. Um, we see a lot of personality disorders, borderline personality disorder. Um, and, you know, the, occasionally we have patients who have schizophrenia or, or, you know, autism spectrum. Do you mind just as briefly, if you don't mind, just describing the main gist of borderline personality disorder in case there's anyone listening? Yes, absolutely. Um, so at Turning Point specifically, we are a DBT program. So we fo- we 
we uh, specialize in dialectical behavior therapy. And this therapy was designed originally for treating borderline personality disorder. Um, Marshall Linehan created this treatment in the early 90s. So borderline personality disorder is more commonly found in females, but it can be a condition in males as well. And the most common characteristics that most people would know or be able to recognize is self-injury. Um, self-injury usually by cutting. Uh, a lot of times it's on the arms, the wrist area, or inner thighs. Um, other types of self-injury as uh, could happen as well are not as common, such as burning or uh, you know swallowing inanimate objects. Um, but other than the, the self-injury piece, the um, some of the major components to that illness are kind of a lack of sense of self. So they often don't know who they are. Will kind of try to blend into crowds or whoever they're with. Um, they often have chronic feelings of emptiness. So they just kind of feel you know, kind of emptied into their soul. They have a real hard time with relationships. So incredible ups and downs in relationships. I think that it's helpful to understand because I feel like that's one of the, that's one of the mental health problems that is very misunderstood and stigmatized. So I think you're, you're taking the time to explain the issues of identity or impulsivity and different people experience it in different ways. I think that's helpful to clarify and you can see perhaps why individuals who struggle with um, coping with their emotions and some of them have been through really horrible things and didn't learn those skills and, and are coping the best way they can, but you can see why that might be associated with substance use problems. So, so that's interesting. You, you use dialectical behavior therapy. Is that, do you, is that a major modality for anyone who presents at turning point or is that specific to certain people? Kind of how, kind of how we do it at turning point is, uh, DBT is a, you know, the core kind of treatment component. So we will, we have most of our groups are DBT focused. So we're teaching the patients how to, you know, regulate their emotions, um, how to uh, incorporate and learn distress tolerance skills. Uh, one really cool thing we do every morning at 845 is we gather everybody together in kind of the, the lunchroom area we call the atrium. And we have, um, we do morning mindfulness so it's about 20 minutes. It's a guided meditation, and it kind of just kind of sets the tone for the day. Um, everybody really loves it, too. And, and I, I'll go in there every once in a while when I can, and I'll just sit with all the patients, and I'll, I'll go through it myself just to kind of center myself for the day. So everybody does get that component, the, the DBT skills. But in individual therapy, the master treatment plan is going to be tailored to the individual. What we often find is very, very often we are – treating trauma um, in that treatment plan. So we're using usually cognitive processing therapy to begin that journey, depending on where they're at with it. Um, but we're also using other types of treatment as well. Relapse prevention therapy is a pretty key component as well. And um, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy for depression and anxiety disorders. Okay. So, the, you know, it's interesting you mentioned DBT also, I know that one of the things Linehan thought was good about it was that it's designed actually for people who have multiple mental health issues that they're struggling with. And yeah. so I could see why that would be a good fit if you're having individuals present with depression and substance use issues. And it kind of, the model of dialectical behavior therapy has that flexibility where you use the treatments depending on what specifically the needs are. So 
Thanks for describing that. I think I think that's really helpful. Absolutely. So I know one of the challenges with substance use disorder is always the risk of relapse. And I'm wondering, do, can you kind of share what, what type of factors seem to drive relapse when it does occur? Yes, relapse occurs quite often, as, as you were alluding to. Um, and one of the things that we are doing at addiction campuses and at, at Turning Point that I think is very different from the the rest of the, the country is we we understand that success is not just completing treatment. You know, most of our clients are going to be with us from anywhere from 30 to 50 days. So we do measure things like, you know, successful completion, and we do have a very high completion rate. In fact, it's, it's, it's incredibly high. But the real question is what you're getting at is what happens afterwards? You know, if you think about, you know, trying to track outcomes, any good, any good research scientist is always going to want to know, you know, what are the objective, obje- what is the objective data showing success or failures? And how do you collect that? So imagine, you know, a patient leaves treatment and you call them, right? So we do that. We have an alumni department that, that reaches out often. And you call a patient a month after they left treatment and you say something like, hey, how's it going? You know, are you still sober? Yeah, I'm still sober. Great. Excellent. They have every reason in the world to lie or not tell the truth. And you cannot rely on that kind of self-report. So one thing that we have, we started about two years ago and have really refined over time is a long-term case management plan. So after our clients leave treatment, we're going to follow them for a year. Um, and we have partnered with a, an outside company who does um, do already kind of does this kind of work. And what they're going to do is they're going to they're going to have weekly phone sessions. They're going to have weekly group sessions. They're going to have an online curriculum. They're going to their case manager. The specific case manager will be assigned to that patient throughout the course of the next twelve months or longer if needed. And they're going to follow up with their family. They're going to follow up with the aftercare plan to make sure that they went to their doctor's appointments or the outpatient program we set them up with. And they're also going to be able to figure out, you know, much more objectively if they had relapsed or, you know, returned to a higher level of care. So we're going to be actually able to collect much more objective data to get at that exact point and see who is relapsing, how many people are relapsing, and if this type of program can prevent or reduce overall relapse. So this is sounds like kind of the medical model you were using earlier. It sounds like treating substance use problems as a chronic illness where it's not something where they're in treatment, they go into remission, and then that's it. It sounds like you're anticipating, and it sounds like many of the people that do present for treatment have already struggled for a long period of time. So what you're trying to do is give them that that extra support that they need once they leave your facility so that they can maintain their their sobriety, which actually leads me to another question. Do you, is the goal in your treatment facility always full abstinence or do you ever have any kind of moderation goals within your facility? Yeah, excellent question. Um, Katie, I'm a, I'm, a big, I'm a big proponent of harm reduction, the harm reduction mm-hmm. model. Uh, especially when it comes to opioids, um, we we do have a what's called a MAT program built into our our facility, medication assisted therapy. 
So we, we do offer that for people who are interested in it or who our medical director deems appropriate. For, it's, it's mainly for opioid users, and, and the drug that we use is called Suboxone. Um, this is a, a opioid-based medication that is taken daily um, that helps keep people off of the heroin or prescription painkillers. And we do offer this as a harm reduction method. It's not designed to be on forever, um, but the research is very clear. I mean, it reduces mortality by half. And wow. when, 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 we, when you see the science and you see the data and it's saving lives, to me it makes no sense to refuse people that or not offer it just because of the old school thought of abstinence only. So for, for certain clients who are deemed appropriate for that and are interested in that, yes, we do offer it. I think I want to kind of expand on the topic a little bit related to opioid use and kind of the, I don't know, you see this term thrown around in the media, I guess, opioid epidemic. And I don't know if you have thoughts about that term, but what do you kind of think is driving this opioid use that we're seeing in the United States? And maybe this is a really big question, but what do you think would be the most helpful thing that we could do to address it? You know, I have been, I've been doing, um, I've been doing interviews on local news uh, here in Memphis and Nashville. I've been doing public outreach. I've been speaking to large groups about this subject um, all year. And it's very clear what's driving this epidemic. It is an epidemic. I mean, if you remember, if you remember the peak of the HIV/AIDS crisis back in the '90s, it is killing more people than HIV/AIDS did back when it first became, you know, a, a big thing. The, and it's very clear what's happening. If you look at a graph of overdose deaths in the United States for the last two decades, you're going to see a kind of steady increase over time. No surprise there. But then when it gets to about 2014, 2015, that same graph, the line shoots almost straight up over the last few years. The significant increase is due directly to the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Fentanyl is a lab-created opioid that's usually used in hospice care, cancer patients, that kind of thing, and it is hit the street. It's incredibly dangerous. It's way more powerful than morphine, up to 100 times as powerful as morphine. And it's getting laced and mixed into all kinds of different street drugs. And a very small amount of fentanyl can be deadly. Um, it's getting mixed into heroin. And recently, a majority of the heroin overdose deaths that we've seen are when the toxicology report comes back, have fentanyl laced into it. But what's even worse is it's getting laced into other drugs. So cocaine, um, Xanax, which is pressed on the streets sometimes, is getting laced with fentanyl. Methamphetamine. So we're seeing an uptick in overdose deaths in drugs that usually didn't create as much overdose death. So the, the, the very clear answer to that question is fentanyl. That drug is what is, is driving the overdose death rates through the roof um, and it is one of the biggest killers out there. To make it even worse, there are other drugs in the same family as fentanyl. There's another one called carfentanil, and li that is literally an elephant tranquilizer. I mean, that's what they use to put down elephants, and that's finding its way into the streets as well. Um, one thing, though, 
in the midst of all this doom and gloom, um, I have been kind of really putting forward a message of hope to everybody because I'm starting to see some. Um, recently, as many people are aware, Congress was able to pass a bipartisan bill, which is focused on this epidemic. And one of the things in that bill that, if successful, could make a huge impact is the curb of fentanyl flowing into this country. And the surprisingly and kind of horrific uh, find there is that most of the fentanyl is coming in literally through the post office. And part of this bill, if, if they're successful, is shutting that down and reducing the amount of fentanyl pouring in by 70%. If they can do that, that will make an immediate impact on the overdose death rate. And we actually might, for the first time in a long time, start to see a decline. And I'm really very hopeful that that, that actually is going to happen. Well, thank you for explaining that. I, I didn't know much about that at all. So that's that's really helpful for understanding. Mm-hmm. Another term that's come up in the news as, I guess, a public health measure to try to, pre- to prevent these types of overdose deaths is Narcan. Do you mind explaining a little bit about what Narcan is and, and what role you see that playing in preventing opioid overdose deaths? Yeah, Narcan's already making an impact. Um, it's it's a miracle drug. It's it's uh, basically it's an opioid agonist, which it, when sprayed into the nostril or injected, immediately starts to reverse the effects of opioids in the brain, especially with the 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 opioid receptors in the brain. Um, I, I've seen this in action. Um, so I have witnessed um, somebody overdosing from heroin, and I, I have witnessed the use of Narcan, and I, I saw this person come back to life. Yeah. It's, it's something I hope I never see again. It was pretty traumatic. But this this simple drug saved him. And, you know, he would not be alive today without it. And the greatest thing about it is – they're usually they usually cost about eighty to one hundred dollars a dose, so it's not cheap, but it's not incredibly expensive, um, and it is foolproof. It's literally a you just spray it into the nostril. It's a plunger method. You literally can't screw it up, and it cannot harm you. So if you were wrong and you someone wasn't overdosing and you sprayed it into their nostril, it's not going to hurt them, and they're not going to they're not it's not going to have any adverse effects. Um, but it can literally pull someone out of a you know an overdose situation within a minute or two. It's amazing. And how so is Narcan something? Is this is I imagine paramedics and law enforcement or who are people who have access to Narcan? Every single frontline, um, like you said, police officers, fire, um, ambulance workers, EMS. Everybody needs to have it. The, the sad thing is not all of them do. Um, lately, and especially in the last two years, it's much more readily available to those frontline responders. But there's a police department um, near where I live here in DeSoto County in Mississippi that still is not armed with this. And what does it come down to, as always? Money. Um, you know, some of these smaller police departments don't have the funds to procure this very simple life-saving drug. So that needs to change immediately. I mean, it needs to be everywhere. Think about it like, um, you know, like having an AED machine, like those automatic defibrillators for people having heart attacks. This should be on the wall right next to that everywhere you'd have those type of life-saving devices. 
Another thing is if you have a family member or an elderly family member who is on a lot of narcotic pain medications for whatever reason, such as you know um, chronic pain conditions or you know even if they're taking them as prescribed, there's still there is a risk of overdose from those medications. Narcan should be in the house. People should be trained how to use it, and it really should just kind of be readily available at all times. Thank you. I something you mentioned about people being prescribed these medications. I assume that when you see people at turning point, that there are a variety of different ways that people start struggling with substance use problems. What are some of the main kind of pathways or or things that lead people to develop the substance use problem in the first place? I'd say you know there many paths lead to Rome, as they say. Um, the most common paths usually, though, are, um, you know, some, almost everybody has a genetic her- genetic link to addiction. Almost everybody that I, I've worked with. Um, and, and then couple that with an invalidating environment during childhood or growing up. Um, or if there's, you know, a lot of addiction in the house or people are using in the house. You have that the genetic heritability, vulnerability compo- component plus the invalidating environment boom, you have an addiction. I would say that's probably the most common pathway. But there are others. And um, there, I have seen, you know, a lot is that person who never struggled with addiction. They never had any problems with drugs or alcohol, but then all of a sudden they had a significant injury, car accident, broken back, something like that. And, you know, of course, they're put on a lot of painkillers. And again, usually there's that genetic predisposition to developing addiction in their family history and they you know have that injury and boom they're addicted to the painkillers honestly it doesn't matter how you get there you know it, it, the, the consequences are the same um, and so th- th- there's many different ways to end up you know having a severe substance use disorder um, but ultimately people suffer just the same and it needs to be treated that's really the key point. And, and when you say invalidating environment, you, you mean like some of the trauma and things that you're that that you were talking about earlier, that they're growing up in a household where they're experiencing some trauma or their feelings or needs, their other needs aren't being met. Is that the type of thing that you see? Yeah. You know, and that's kind of, you know, the, the, the very mild kind of description of it. You know, the majority of them have horrific childhoods or horrific traumatic experiences um, I would. I think the literature suggests about seventy percent of females um, who are suffering from severe substance use disorders and are present in a treatment facility such as the one that I work at have a severe physical, emotional, or sexual abuse history. And it's not much different for the males. Usually, about sixty percent for the males. So they've been through hell, and mm-hmm. it, it never surprises me that they end up addicted to substances. What does surprise me is that people blame them for it and think that it's just all a choice. Because if you spent, you know, spend one day with me at work, and I'll, and I'll show you, I'll show you what's really going on. Well, maybe just to kind of shift gears and, and end on kind of a lighter note, um, I do want to kind of just check in as is kind of the theme of the podcast. Are there any particularly good kind of fictional depictions of substance use problems that come to mind? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I had spoken with Katie about this before, and I think when it comes to like you know, if we're if we're looking at like movies or fictional 
stories that really kind of seem genuine or real or what it may look like. Uh, Requiem for a Dream always comes up in oh. my mind. That you know the if you've seen that movie, there's a lot of pieces in there. Like for example, you know he I remember um, Jared Leto he, he stole someone's TV with his mom. I can't remember. Some family members' television, pawning it, getting it out of pawn, pawning it again, um, you know, and then you saw he had significant problems from injection site, um, you know, and he ended up losing his arm, I believe, uh, infections. Um, I can't remember the, the female lead character's name, but she ended up um, basically prostituting herself for um for the drugs and i I think a lot of that is is pretty accurate you know that that's happened that happens quite a bit those kind of things so i think that's one good one um can't think of any others off the top of my head but that's the one that usually comes to mind for me are there any that come to mind that are particularly bad or harmful um hmm that's a good question you mean like like that would kind of perpetuate the the misconceptions of addiction? Is that what you're asking? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, um, that's a good question. Uh, nothing really comes to mind at the moment, but um, sure. I'm sure there there are probably quite a few. Probably most of them, actually. Most movies that kind of show this stuff um, are probably kind of more in that category. I know one thing that we. Uh, had talked about on a previous episode a while ago where we kind of touched upon substance use disorders is sometimes the, um, you know, in fictional depictions, there's this tendency to kind of romanticize um, substance use disorders, particularly maybe sometimes related to alcohol use. I know I can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head, but I know that's one thing that we had touched upon a little bit in the past. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, um, a lot of the a lot of patients will often focus on that same kind of thing. So the we call it war stories um, in the in the field, um, but they'll often focus on, like you said, they'll romanticize the drug use. You know, they'll focus on the good times or the fun that they had. Um, it's it's amazing how quickly they will start to forget the consequence side. Another interesting thing you, you actually kind of made me think of, and I actually learned this from patients. Um, the war stories or the romanticizing happens a lot. So you get patients sitting around, they're outside smoking cigarettes or sitting around just chatting and you'll hear it a lot. And, and we try to, you know, prevent that as much as we can because it can be a trigger for other people. Um, but then, you know, I asked a patient at one time a long time ago, you know, why, why do people do that? You know, why is everybody sitting around talking about it? Um, using as this great thing when you're all here in treatment trying to get better. And he, he gave me a great answer. He said, you know, for most of us, we've been using for so long that most of our memories of who we are and, you know, how and the fun times that we've had, we've always been intoxicated and we don't really have anything else to talk about. That kind of put it in perspective for me. And it wasn't, it made me kind of realize it wasn't just, they were out there trying to, you know, talk about how great it is and use, but they're just talking about their life. Someone else would in a conversation, but their life has just been riddled with this disease. So that's kind of the topic. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Bennett, for your time today. Is there anything else we should talk about before we conclude our episode? I want to thank you guys again for allowing me the opportunity to, you know, to kind of get this, this message out and, um, and um, I really love what you guys do. I mean, I, I especially loved the uh, Darth Vader episode. Um, 
<laughs> um, so it's, but you know, I think just the last thing to do is just remember that, you know, no matter what you think about addiction or if you have a family member struggling with it or no matter how, how strong your preconceived notions are of what this disease is, just remember it is a disease. Most people do want to stop. Most people need help to stop. And the faster we can get around to the fact that this is an illness that needs to be treated like an illness, the better the better off everybody's going to be and, and the easier that we're going to be able to make a difference. Thank you. And thank you for the, the wonderful, inspiring work you're doing in this area. I, I think that it's so important for the people that you work with directly in through your facility, but also doing talking to the media so that more people can have a better understanding of these things. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, yeah. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council Podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.